everyone! Welcome to the sermon podcast from Mount Hope Belmont's location, where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live a life driven by faith. This series, we will be talking about how God prepares His people. Many times we get so focused on the big, incredible moments in life that we tend to overlook the little moments that shaped those incredible ones. Jeff Mannion says that a remarkable life is built by taking a thousand unremarkable steps. The same can be said when reflecting on our faith and spiritual life. God often works through the day-to-day to prepare His people for the remarkable things in life. Join us for the next few weeks as we look at Scripture and see how God truly prepares His people. If you have your Bible uh, or you don't have one, you can grab one from a chair around you. I'm going to encourage you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're going to be there in just a few minutes. If you're using, if you don't have a Bible with you, a copy of God's Word, or you don't have the app on your phone that you're clicking over to, just grab one of the Bibles in the chair that's uh, underneath your uh, chair there in a chair rack. Uh, Deuteronomy 8 is actually on page 152 in the Bibles that are in your chair rack. I believe they're all the same. If it's not right on that number, it's going to be very close to that number, page 152 of Deuteronomy 8. And uh, I don't have all these scriptures on the screen, so if you're thinking, I'll just watch it on the screen, I don't have it all on the screen, so you're going to follow along if you want to read it there with me. Um, We're going to get in there. We're in this series called How God Prepares People. This is the last week of this series. We're starting a new message series next week, but the last week of this series we've been doing in August of How God Prepares People. And let me start with a question. How many of you have ever been asked to do something that you didn't feel prepared to do? Wow, quite a few. Anyone want to be bold enough to shout out something you were asked to do that you didn't feel prepared to do? No, no one wants to let anyone know that, right? No one wants to know. Uh, I think there are times, whether it's a work situation, a school situation, some of you start in school tomorrow maybe, or this week, and you're not ready, or you're not ready for your kids to go, Um, but uh, there are places in life where we are asked to do something, and we are not prepared to do it, Uh, and yet... Uh, In our spiritual lives, I believe, and we believe at Mount Hope, that God is constantly preparing you for what he has for you next. And uh, we may not always feel that way, and we may not always be able to see it, but God is preparing people. In fact, in this series, one of the things we've been talking about is often the place of preparation for God is a place of obscurity. It's, It's a place where nobody actually sees What's going on? It's kind of like when in the um, late 1800s, if in the late 1800s, if you wanted to cross from Brooklyn into New York City, or just what was called New York then, uh, you had to take a ferry from Brooklyn to New York. And there were lots of them. And there were hundreds of them because hundreds of thousands of people had to get across the East River from Brooklyn to New York. But a lot of people thought, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to take the ferry? Wouldn't it be great if there was a land bridge between Brooklyn and New York? Because the ferries are great, but in the winter and with the currents and with the ice and with everything else going on, and at times when you had to take large cargo from one side to the other, it got difficult. 
but how would you build a bridge over the East River? It seemed insurmountable. For one, the currents were strong and would wash away bridges, but secondly, you had large sailing ships that had to make it up the East River, so anything built over it would have to have a huge clearance, and nobody was willing to undertake it except in the 1800s, a man named John Roebling thought that it could be done. John Roebling had built suspension bridges in other places, much smaller, of course, and he had this dream that a suspension bridge could be built over the East River. It would have to be the largest span of suspension bridge that had ever been built. Certainly since then, there have been longer ones built, the Manhattan Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge, but at the time, it would be the largest span of suspension bridge in the world. And he undertook, he had to convince people to build it, and he did, and he started the, well, he didn't start the work, he died, but those who carried on, his son and others carried on the work, and they were building the bridge, and as they did, they had the two towers. If you can picture the Brooklyn Bridge in your mind, there's those two huge towers, right? Gothic, uh, like uh, entrances that the cars go through, four huge cables. And when they built it, the Brooklyn Tower was getting built, and it stood 100 feet above the waterline in June of 1872. But on the New York side, couldn't see anything. In fact, people that were skeptical of the bridge were starting to think that the Brooklyn Bridge was just a pipe dream that was never actually going to happen. They built this one tower, but there's nothing going on on the other side. The chief engineer knew of the skepticism, and he issued a statement that's recorded in David McCullough's book, The Great Bridge, and this is the statement he issued because the tower on the New York side didn't stand 100 feet above the high tide watermark. It actually stood 78 feet 6 inches below the waterline, and this is what he wrote. To such of the general public as might imagine that no work had been done on New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during the past winter underwater is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the water." And it's true, right, that a lot of times what's going on below the waterline is just as important, maybe even more important than what we can see above the waterline, but you can't see it. And it's true in bridges, and it's true in your life, and it's true in your spiritual life as well, that your walk with God, some people can see a little bit of it poking above the waterline, and they see what's going on, but most of what God's doing a lot of it happens below the waterline. Nobody sees it, but it's important work of how God is preparing you. And that's what we're talking about in this series. A lot of the work that God does to prepare people is in obscurity. We looked at people like David and Joseph and Esther. And you can go back in our podcast if you miss those messages and hear how God prepared people in obscurity. But here's the other thing about being prepared in obscurity. Sometimes... Maybe it feels like nothing is happening. Maybe it even feels like to you, you it, that sometimes it feels like, yeah, I think God is at work, but it doesn't really seem like anything's happening in my life. Maybe that's just me, but I'm guessing it's probably you too if you follow God. 
that there's times where you feel like, oh yeah, God's active, God's doing something, I am aware of it. And a lot of times, you're just not sure what's going on. Maybe it feels like you are wandering around and wondering what God is doing. Because you thought maybe when you came to Jesus that everything would instantly be changed. And then it wasn't quite instantly changed. It was kind of like when I was in college and we decided on spring break to go out to ski in Colorado. And I had never been to Colorado skiing, but I love skiing. And we were going to school in southwest Missouri, and that's not too far from Colorado. And we thought, man, wouldn't it be great if we could go out and ski in Colorado? So we thought, we're going to plan this trip. And we did it one spring break. But we're poor college students, so we're not flying. We're driving from southwest Missouri to Colorado. You know what's in between southwest Missouri and Colorado? state called Kansas. (laughs) Any of you driven through Kansas? couple of you. The rest of you aren't missing much. You can imagine in your head what it's like to drive through Kansas. Uh, It is flat cornfields and bean fields and other things that are growing out there, and you see crops for mile after mile after mile, and once you've seen it, you've seen it, and you're ready to be done with Kansas. But you're driving, and we were driving. It was my first time driving through Kansas, and I thought, well, okay, I've seen enough of Kansas. I can't wait to get to Colorado. And we're driving, and I thought, well, we're going to, my friend and I, who's also from the Northeast, we're from up here, and we thought once we get into Colorado, everything's going to be different. And we can't wait. We're going to go. And you see these signs come on Colorado border, and you find out how far away you are, and we're going to get to Colorado. We had enough of Kansas. And we finally crossed the border. You know what, when you cross the border, what eastern Colorado looks like? It looks a lot like western Kansas. And you thought everything was going to change in that moment, and then you find that eastern Colorado looks a lot like western Kansas until you drive quite a bit further. And sometimes in our lives with God, our spiritual lives, I think we come to Jesus and we think everything's going to be different. And maybe you came to Jesus and you came to follow God, and you finally surrendered your life to God. And you had that moment, and it's an important moment. And if you have not had that moment today, I believe God has you here for a purpose. And the greatest thing you can do with your life is give your heart to Jesus Christ and trust your life in God's hands. Many of you have already done that, and maybe you thought, once I do that, my life, everything's going to be different. And a lot of things were different. Your view was different. You certainly received and felt that forgiveness that you were given by God and you were given a new heart and you were given a new purpose and and you had a relationship with God, but then you went to work or you went to school and it was Tuesday. And it's just Tuesday. And it's the same people on the bus. It's the same people in school. It's the same people in the workplace. And you thought, has anything really changed? Because this looks a lot like eastern Colorado and western Kansas because I thought things would be different. But if you felt that way, you're not alone. I think all of us who have been following Jesus for a short amount of time or a long amount of time, what we've learned is that God works in the process. I had one pastor put it this way, that God gives you a promise and and then there's a payoff but in the middle, there's a process. And sometimes nobody talks about the process. I'll be honest, sometimes us pastors, we're not very good about talking about the process because we get all excited about the payoff. 
Come to Jesus. You got eternal life. God loves you. You get to know God. You get to be in relationship with him. Have your sins forgiven and one day go to heaven. And that's the payoff. But we sometimes don't talk very much about that process in between. And in that process is the preparation of God in your life and in my life. In this final week of this series, we're not looking at an individual. I just want to look for a few minutes at a group of people. Uh, a group of people, a nation of people called the Israelites. The Israelites, if you know their story from the, uh, God's relationship with them, were God's chosen people. God chose them to reveal who he was to the world. He had to choose somebody, and he chose the Israelites. He chose the Jewish people so that through his relationship with them, the world could see what he was like and that we could learn that God is loving and caring and all the attributes of him. And he chose the Israelites, and he gave the first one, his name was Abraham, a promise. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you a land for that nation, and I want to make you a blessing to the whole world world. That was the promise. Now, between the promise and the payoff, there was a big process that took place. What happened was he did make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, but they were in slavery to another nation called Egypt for 400 years. In that time, they grew in numbers to maybe 2 million people. And then God said, it's time to take you from this nation of slavery to bring you to the land that I have promised you. And through a series of miraculous interventions that if you know anything about the Jewish faith, you heard of Passover, that's when they remember God's deliverance. So in the spring, if, you're, if you are Jewish, you have Jewish friends that celebrate Passover, they are remembering God's deliverance out of Egypt and out of slavery in the miraculous way he did it. And what they did is they crossed the Red Sea. God set them free out of Egypt, which was one of the most powerful nations on earth. This slave force of apparently about 2 million people brought them through the Red Sea on dry land, brought them to the other side. And I'm guessing the other side looked something like western Kansas. Because you got there and you thought, all right, God, promised land. But they're in the desert. In fact, another word for it is they're in the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness, and God's not going to take them directly to the land he's going to give them because they're not ready for it. So some people actually call it the wilderness wanderings. And I wonder if sometimes you and I feel like our life with God is wilderness wanderings. Wanderings in the wilderness, there are two ingredients. Wandering is time. Wilderness is a place or a space. And the truth is that God's work in your life takes place over time and in particular places and spaces. So you go to work and you just think you're going to work. I got to go punch the clock. I got to make some money. I've got to do what's being told to me. You know, nothing really special is going on. But yet, I believe that God is at work in your life when you are at work. That just as the Israelites wandering around the wilderness were actually experiencing God working in them, that you and I are as well. 
Because the truth is, there's preparation that's happening in the midst of your process. God is preparing you for something. And sometimes in the wandering in the wilderness, in fact, I'm going to say all the time, when you are in the wilderness and you are moving around and wandering, God is at work in your life. Because here's the truth. God got the Israelites out of Egypt, but it would take a long time, in fact, at least 40 years, for God to get the Egypt out of the Israelites so that they were ready to enter into his promise. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, the truth is when you come to Jesus and when I come to Jesus, we don't come as blank slates. There's something in you, there's something in me that often has to be worked out, a lot of it. Uh, Pastor Pete Scazzaro puts it this way, Jesus is in my heart, but grandpa's in my bones. <laughs> right? I mean, it's true, right? Jesus is in my heart. I love Jesus, but I got a lot of family history stuff too, <laughs> I got a lot of baggage I'm bringing with me to Jesus. I got a lot of ways that I deal with people and I deal with life that I bring with me to Jesus. And not all of those ways are Jesus ways. And so there's preparation in the process. Doesn't always feel that way, but I believe God is at work in you, preparing you for what he has next for you. We can sometimes look at what's going on in our lives and wonder, God, is there really anything of purpose going on here? My wife and I this past, my family and I, the kids too, this past week we were out at West Point visiting some friends of ours. And if you've never been to West Point, the United States Military Academy for Training of the Army, it's a pretty impressive place to be and to visit. Uh, they have a system there. <laughs> and they stick to their system. <laughs> They've been doing it for hundreds of years. And the system is to take men and women out of high school and turn high school students into officers within four years. And they have a very particular way to do it, a very regimented way to do it. In fact, we were walking through the visitor center at West Point, and they have the uh, room checklist that they have, to, uh, they, go, they have to complete every week, every Saturday morning, their room is inspected. Any West Point grads here? I don't want to, no one's here. So let me explain. Every, every week they have, every Saturday morning, their room is inspected. And they will sometimes be up all night on Friday to get ready for their Saturday morning room inspection. And I copied and took a picture of this list because I am going to hang it in my kid's room. <laughs> I don't think it's going to make a difference, but it's going to make me feel better. The room inspect, and it was ridiculous. I mean, it's, let me just read you just the bed. So first of all, there's something for every aspect of the room, every piece of furniture. Here's the bed. Made with two sheets, gray blanket, pulled tight, and green girl folded, clean linen. Pillow parallel with the edge of the mattress. Green girl folded correctly, faced towards Pillow. Only issued linen comforters displayed, area under bed swept, bed frame cleaned of dust and dirt, boots, shoes, at least one per cadet aligned and shined, bed storage is organized with neat professional appearance and with unlocked Sammy, I don't even know what that means for Sammy inspection, but you had to see these beds when they had them. They had this crease that was on them and this 
angle of the blanket was perfect. In fact, they said some cadets will not even sleep in their bed. They'll just leave it like that all week. The clothes in their closet has to be evenly spaced, one fist apart with the hangers at 45-degree angles with each of their uniforms displayed in a certain order and their hats in a certain order. Here's why I tell you that. Because if you are a cadet at the West Point Military Academy, there's got to be a Saturday morning or a Friday night when you think, what is the point of this? What This is ridiculous. I came here to train to be a soldier. I came here because there's a purpose and a mission I want to get to. And what I'm doing is folding sheets and hanging my clothes on a 45-degree angle. But over hundreds of years, West Point Academy has been able to turn high school students, boys and girls, into men and women who are officers in the military within four years. And sometimes in your walk with God, you're going to have days where you say, what is the point of this? But for thousands of years, God has been turning men and women who live for themselves into men and women who are world changers and disciples of Jesus Christ, who follow them, with, who follow him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's at work doing that in your life. So what's the point of the wanderings in the wilderness? Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 10. So they're wandering around in the wilderness a bit. And God finally, in Deuteronomy 8, he tells them part of the purpose of that. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live. This is just before they're entering into the promised land. That you may, uh, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to you and your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years years in the wilderness. Let me read that again. You shall remember the whole way. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you no, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper and you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. The Lord God is bringing you to the Rockies of Colorado, even though it looks like western Kansas right now. He's saying, he's saying God is bringing you into this amazing place. But before he could, you had to walk through 40 years, 
40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Why? Why? What could God possibly be doing in that time? Two things. The reason is because there were things that needed to be worked out of them, and there were things that needed to be worked into them. And when you are following God, there are things that God needs to work out of you before he can take you fully where he wants to take you. There are habits that you have formed in your life that God says that one needs to go. And we need to work that one out. That has to go. Let me give you an example of what it was like for them. They were in Egypt, as I said, slaves for 400 years. You know what slaves don't get? A day off. No, I, slaves, they worked for 400 years, their, their, their people, and generation after generation after generation. So this is in them. This is who they are. God brings them out. He says, I got a new way for you to live. Gives them something we know as the Ten Commandments, makes a covenant with them. One of those commandments, the fourth one, says you shall work six days and rest one day, the seventh day. You think, well, what's the big deal about that? We've heard that for you. Here's the big deal. That wasn't in them. What was in them was you work every day, and if you don't work, you don't eat, and you are dependent completely on your own labor, and you have to work, and you have to provide for yourself, and God says, no, 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 no. I need you to learn something. I need that worked out of you because on that one day, you remember that you are dependent upon me and that I'm ultimately the one who provides for you. That one day, when you stop working, you remember that you're not the one that actually brings about the provision anyway. It's me that brings it about. And I need to work out that slave mindset out of you. It's kind of like uh, nowadays they talk about a prison mindset for people who spend almost their whole life in prison. They get out of prison. They don't know how to live on their own without someone telling them every single thing in their day. Well, they were slaves in Egypt. God said, no, I'm going to give you a new way to live. We need to work out those old ways of thinking. You have ways of thinking in you. You came to Jesus and you brought them with you and God's saying, we need to work some of those out. Because Jesus says things like, if you want to be the greatest, you have to serve the most. And that's contrary to the way our society teaches us. Jesus does things like getting down on the floor, taking a basin and a towel, and washes the dirty feet of fishermen and workers who have been walking through dirty streets all day. That's not normal. That's not the way of society. So there's things in you and of me, there's pride issues that God has to work out. It was the same thing. So they had to wander around the wilderness 40 years because Deuteronomy says, the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Sometimes when you are wandering in the wilderness, God is showing you what's really in your heart. God, I deserve more than this. I deserve better than this job. I deserve to be treated better than that. I don't deserve to, to be treated like that. How dare they say those words to me? How dare they speak to me like that? Oh, what's in my heart? I'm wandering in the wilderness and God's showing me. 
what's in my heart. Oh, they spit at you, Jesus. Oh, they crucified you, Jesus. What's in my heart comes out when I'm wandering around in the wilderness. And I think there's many things in your life and in my life that we feel like it's just an everyday Tuesday, but God is looking and making us into who he needs us to be. And then there's things that need to be worked in. There's things that need to be worked in. There's things in your life that need to be worked out, but then there's things that need to be worked in. He said this, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out, your foot did not swell. God's saying, look, you know what you need to learn? Something needs to be worked in you, and that is that you can trust God, that you can rely upon him. Here's the thing. You're out in the desert, and there's no water and no food, and you get about two million people. What are we going to do? In fact, what happened is they started complaining. What's the point of being out here? Let's go back to Egypt. At least we had food. They forget to mention they were slaves, but we had food. Let's go back to Egypt. But in the desert and in the wilderness is where God showed them that he was the one that would provide their food. He brought water out of a rock to quench the thirst of this huge group of people. He sent something called manna every day on the ground, six days, that they could collect and eat and would sustain them so that they would know that God provides for your needs. They're in the desert. There's no meat. There's no cattle. There's no place to raise cattle. God sends flocks of quail so that they can have meat to eat to sustain them. They don't have any cows to make leather sandals. God makes their sandals last and not wear out for 40 years. Some of you buying some new shoes for school and wish God would do that again, right? <laughs> Price of shoes lately. But this is the way that God shows his provision. And what did it work into them? You can trust me. God was telling them, you can trust me. If you can trust me to provide water out of a rock in the desert, then is there anything you don't have you can't trust me for in your life? And wandering around on a Tuesday morning or on a Thursday in work, and you have to trust God to come through for you at work, and you have to trust God to come through for you for that bill that you didn't think you could pay, but you need to pay. And it just feels like you're wandering and not making any progress. And yet you see God provide and you learn, I can trust him. God, I can trust you. Because if I can trust you in those little things, then when the bigger things start to come, you know you can trust God. See, we start to wonder about the wandering. And when you wonder about the wandering, what you have to remember is God is at work. And he's working some things out of you, and he's working some things into you. And so God will take you in order to prepare you to wander in the wilderness for a while. He'll take you over time to different spaces and places 
But in those places, he will meet you. I encourage you to look for God at work in your life in the midst of your every day. That's what we've been trying to say this whole series. That in places of obscurity, in the everyday things of your life, it's not just in this room on a Sunday morning. It's not just in a small group Bible study. It is in your everyday life that the God of the universe is at work making you into the woman of God, the man of God that he has called you to be. Don't relegate God's presence, God's work, God's uh, preparation to this room one day a week. When you wake up on Tuesday morning and it looks like Western Kansas and nothing's changed, start by saying, God, please show me where you are at work in my life today. God, please show me those places that you need to work out things. Please show me what you need to work into me. One of the most extreme examples, I think, of someone who experienced this is Johnny Erickson Tata. And uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, for those of you who don't know her story, about 50 years ago when she was a young girl, she was paralyzed by diving into the shallow end of a swimming pool ended up a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And Johnny's no, um, doesn't hesitate to share about the difficulties of that and the trials of that, and I appreciate that. But she's also a follower of Jesus who also sees God at work in the midst of it too. And what could feel like wandering and purposelessness, Johnny Erickson Tata finds purpose and meaning in the midst of it. And at one point, recently, reflecting on 50 years as a quadriplegic, she was, uh, I was reading an article about what she said. She said, last week, my husband Ken and I were at our Johnny and Friends family retreat in Alabama. We were lunching in the big, noisy dining hall when a college-aged volunteer approached me, holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured to the crowd and asked, Miss Johnny, do you ever think how none of this would be happening if it, not, if it were not for your diving accident. I, fin I flashed a smile and said, it's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared for a moment at the dining hall scene. I suddenly had a 35,000 foot view of the moment. She's right. And Johnny says, I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. And you look at your life, and sometimes you think it's just wandering around, and all oh, it's not quite, I'm not where I thought I'd be. I haven't reached the payoff. The promise hasn't come about yet. And yet God is at work in your life. And God is doing stuff in you and through you and preparing you for things that you wouldn't be ready for if you didn't wander through the wilderness for a little while. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. 
you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at mthopebelmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.